Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Brian Keating. Brian Keating is a Chancellor's Distinguished Professor of Physics at the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences in the Department of Physics at the University of California, San Diego. He's a public speaker, inventor, and an expert in the study of the universe's oldest light, the cosmic microwave background, uh, using it to learn about the origin and evolution of the universe. He's a writer and podcaster and the best-selling author of one of Amazon Editor's best nonfiction books of all time called Losing the Nobel Prize. Uh, the name of his podcast is called Into the Impossible. And I also have to read, besides your bio, I have to read a comment on that page which said, are you sick of science popularizers who wax poetically about wormholes and breathlessly rhapsodize about the mind of God? Me too. And I'm like, yes, me too. People are like, you must follow all this stuff. I'm like, you know, the practice of physics isn't the same as about reading the stuff that's out there. And how we cross paths, if you don't mind my sharing this, I hope you don't mind my sharing how we, we cross paths on Clubhouse when you were speaking with James Altucher, who's been on this podcast. And I asked him, I was like, I want to ask you, but if I got only time to ask one person one question, I asked him about his experience on this podcast. But then our, our paths have crossed a lot that we've had, let's see, Eric Metaxas is where I heard about you. And he's been on this podcast and his book, both of his books on William Wilberforce and on Dietrich Bonhoeffer have been very influential on me. And then when I was looking up, I saw you were, there was an article, I think in oh, crap, a pop science article. And you mentioned Paul Steinhardt, who I took a class with at Penn when I was in grad school. You're on Jordan Harbinger's podcast. He's an old friend of mine. And I really want to talk to you about the stuff that I've come across that you cover that a lot of scientists don't, which is values, meaning, uh, people. But Best non-science fiction book, best non-fiction book of all time, Losing the Nobel Prize. That's pretty catchy. It, it, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I never wanna, really wanted to write a book. I never thought I would write a book about really anything of import besides my PhD thesis, which was, I don't even know if my advisor read it. Uh, I'll ask him. He's <laughs> going to be on my podcast tomorrow. So I'm finally going to get to ask him if he actually read my thesis. But uh, I assume he did. Maybe he did. But I didn't think anyone would want to read anything I wrote. And I think that's you know really true. I mean, I, I don't think most books are worth reading except for you know stories that cannot not be told. And I felt like I would only write a book if I was able to, you know, kind of reveal a story and tell a, a tale that either in fiction or nonfiction that, that no one else could do for one reason or another. And when the affairs of life took me to the bottom of the planet in Antarctica, to the tops of, uh, you know, the heights of, of kind of scientific uh, superstardom potentially and, and the uh, prospects I had to win the Nobel Prize, that um, I really couldn't resist that story being uh, kept in my head alone uh, forever and or maybe just you know sharing it with my uh, with my my wife or my immediate friends and family so I realized at the moment when we made this announcement that we had detected the uh, imprimatur of a particular type of physical phenomenon known as the inflationary epoch that such a thing was worthy of, of communication to the public and in so doing, I could tell my own story and how I had this unlikely path to come to grips with science at its highest levels and a unique insider's glimpse into how science is done. 
And so I didn't think I could, I could resist it. And therefore I did it. And it took a long time to do it. A couple of years of, uh, you know, people ask, how long did it take to write the book? I said, well, you know, 40 years of research and then, you know, a year sitting down in front of a computer writing it. I had a lot of help and, and great uh, friends and, and editors at Norton and, and elsewhere. And really without them and, and the kind of collaborators that I had that I mentioned in the book, the acknowledgements are, you know, 10 pages long. Uh, and that's for good reason, because I think, you know, science is, is, is also a human story. And too often do we lose the perspective that scientists are people, despite the stereotype that we're just these walking Wikipedias. <laughs> yeah, you, you could have stopped there, but I feel like you, you almost started there on a new path of commentary and thought and insight that you have used I mean, not just from your experience, but also your knowledge and, and a willingness to share. So was that scary? Was that an obvious step for you? Was it inevitable? I felt, you know, that it was unavoidable. It was sort of a date with destiny to do that. And the kind of proof that it was worth kind of venturing, as I say, in the words of Arthur C. Clarke, into the impossible to do something so challenging has to write a book, uh, despite, you know, I mean, it's, there's no way you can really make a serious amount of income from writing a book uh, nowadays uh, with all the other alternatives to reading a book, like cat videos on YouTube and other things that I indulge in, that it was basically impossible to uh, avoid it. And at the same token, I wouldn't release it because, you know, it's kind of final. It's, it's even more final than a paper that I might write as a scientist because we can always retract things as we did you know, spoiler alert, the book is called Losing the Nobel Prize. And so how that came to happen is basically the result of, of having to to disconfirm the results that we claim that we had seen the face of God. <laughs> As I always like to joke about that phrase is kind of hackneyed and and uh, and overused. But, but the point being that, um, you know, I wanted to do it right. And I knew I only had one shot. And so I put everything into it. And I figured this would probably be the only book. It took me 40 plus years to to come up with a good enough story, it would probably take me another 40 years. And by that time, I'll be too old to write a book and probably not doing science anymore. So I felt it was my only shot uh, to get it. And so I wanted to do a great job on it. So I, I had a lot of help from friends and, and workers and, and collaborators. And and it came out, you know, I think, I think pretty well. I, I certainly didn't expect it to be, you know, received so well by Amazon and and to get invitations to talk with them and write on their blog, um, do all sorts of fun things that really opened my eyes. And then eventually to, you know, come to meet some of the people that you've had on your show, that really wouldn't have happened. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I told this to Jordan Harbinger, who was on my podcast. Uh, Jordan introduced me to James Altucher, even though James and I had met when we did a TEDx event together in San Diego in 2014, James never remembered me. You know, he's notoriously bad at replying to emails, mm -hmm. even from you know, friends and family, it turns out. So I thought there was a little hope, but I asked Jordan and the way I got on Jordan's podcast is by way of another podcaster, Connor Beaton, who does a podcast called Man Talks. And there's a whole side, you know, story behind that, how uh, we originally recorded a podcast with Connor. I did a podcast on Man Talks, then that got deleted and I had to go back <laughs> and re-record it. It's kind of, uh, it's just my first ever podcast. And I thought it was great. And he deleted it by accident. I deleted it. I don't remember to this day what happened. But if I hadn't gone back and kind of uh, was willing to be humble and, and go back and take any publicity I could, he would not have introduced me to Jordan and Jordan wouldn't have introduced me to James. And then, you know, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. So you can never tell how these ripples will percolate throughout the fabric of, of podcast space uh, and time. <laughs> 
I got distracted a bit because I started looking to make sure I hit the record button. <laughs> I don't know if you've had that yet happen. I've done that. I've, yeah. I've, I've almost, uh, Zoom in particular has done some stuff that's quite, you know, quite a challenge. But uh, anyway, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it happens to all of us at one point or another. You keep working on science, but you're branching out into people. I mean, what I saw on with Metaxas and Ben Shapiro is talking about faith, talking about uh, values. And, you know, my stuff is, I have a science background, but when I work in the area of sustainability, I think a lot of people would like to say, look, the science is clear, end of story. But there's values that are not part of that, that that's where our decisions come from. And I feel like a lot of scientists miss that, but I feel like you're tackling that. That's where, one of the places you're going. Do I read that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of my harshest critics, who's actually a decent friend of mine, her name is Sabina Hassenfelder. She's a big YouTuber. 200,000 followers and, and she writes a blog or she's pretty snarky and, and uh, she's a curmudgeon and she revels in that. And when she reviewed my book, she wrote, you know, like, I don't agree with him. He's got his own problems with this Nobel prize and, and, um, and there's no, you know, there's no telling what, uh, what they should do about it. They can do whatever they want. By the way, the book is 13 chapters, only three of which are about the Nobel prize and what's wrong with it. After I was invited to nominate the winners of the very prize that I could have won. So it kind of be like you inviting me to come on your podcast. And I say, ah, you know what, Josh, I, I, I'd rather have an introduction to, to Jordan, please. You know, would, would you do me that favor? Yeah. So I was asked to nominate someone better than me, uh, which I did do. And I use that experience in the book to advocate for reformation as uh, I think is sorely needed. And many of the nine Nobel prize winners who have been on my podcast agree with me as well, but we can talk about that at a different time. But for me, the main thing to think about is, yeah, why do we do the science that we do? What is the motivation for doing the science? And I think that too few physicists actually look at that and ask themselves why they're doing that. Uh, Yeah. So in terms of like thinking about the bigger picture values questions, it's funny because your uh, former professor, Paul Steinhardt, is a good friend of mine and has been on the, my podcast multiple times. You know, he basically has this impression of most physicists, but they're not really that curious that it's almost become a job. And I say, well, you know, is that surprising? I mean, we do need to make a living. We do have, you know, uh, careers to, to further. And, and although you and I, Paul and I might have this curiosity and this passion, and I'm not as nearly in his class. But it's kind of, you know, we lose track. Everyone thinks we just think about Einstein all day and, and these big picture, you know, can we come up with a theory of everything, the God equation, to know the mind of God. But, you know, in reality, even for someone like me who does think about such things, if I didn't have my podcast, I'd probably go crazy because all I do most days is, is appear on telecons, not podcasts. I talk to vendors supplying, you know, fasteners for some, you know, pro- or deal with, uh, you know, teaching, you know, committee assignments and all sorts of wearisome things that have nothing to do with science. You know, I always say, I thought being an astronomer meant I spent my time on telescopes, not telecons, but really the opposite is true. So for me, it's an outlet to, to get to talk to people like you, people that I want to talk to, not some vendor, you know, who just called me who wants to know if they can drop off a pallet of concrete, you know, blocks to, to weight down this, this platform that we're building. You know, I mean, those are important things and it's part of my job and I have to do the work every day, but it's not what I wanted, what I got into astrophysics to do. And that is kind of a bigger picture that I don't want to lose sight of. And I think too many people do lose track of why they became interested in physics because they're clearly able to do things, my colleagues, much better than I am in many different fields that would be much more lucrative. So I kind of view it as my role to kind of provoke them into, you know, reminding them of why they got into what they're doing and how important it is and how unique it is and how lucky we are to do what we do. 
Uh, you make me, one of the things I often say is, you know, Ernest Rutherford just said, hey, put the detector over there and see what happens. And they discovered effectively the nucleus. Yes. Now I think it would be like moving the detector means 10 years from now and 10,000 scientists in 10 different nations with a billion dollar budget, like it moves an inch and mm-hmm. it's different field. Right. The, the, yeah. It's what I studied to get into. Isn't what I, what I found on the flip side. I mean, I went out of the field for a long time. I wasn't practicing. Well, I mean, I'm not in academic science right now, but I feel that there's for scientists today. Now, someone could be very interested in, in pursuing science out of curiosity and, and the aesthetic joy of it. And I'm all for it. Uh, and there are plenty of scientific issues that are of great importance to me, I feel what I'm doing with the environment and sustainability is as much science as I ever practiced before. And I can't imagine a scientist not wanting to work in this area if they know, I mean, we can read the data and understand the trends presumably better than the average person. And the trends seem so clear that I'm surprised more people don't work on it. And the people who do work on it seem to focus a lot on getting the error bars down, which is very important getting the information out, which is very important, but not what to do about it. And I feel like that's a big missing gap. I mean, scientists aren't trained to lead. They're not trained to, they're trained to get information out, but not to make it meaningful or useful or figure out what to do with it, nor for themselves to do anything with it, except keep pursuing more. Yeah. I don't know. What does it look like from the inside? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, my thing lately is is to note that the word science, you know, derives from the Latin word scientia, which means uh, knowledge. It doesn't mean wisdom. And, you know, my, my smartphone has a lot of knowledge, uh, you know, theoretically. There's a lot of artificial intelligence, but it doesn't have wisdom. And even in the knowledge space, you know, you ask it to do something and I say goodbye to my wife or my kids, you know, sweetie, and then it thinks I'm talking to it. It'll probably go off now. You know, I don't want to set off the S word, say the S word that you can't say on podcasts now. So yeah, you're absolutely right. People don't think about that. They don't acknowledge it. I'm not sure why, because, you know, some of the most eminent scientists in history from Galileo to Einstein to Hawking to nowadays is Michio Kaku is coming out with a new book, The God Equation. You hear about all these kind of very big picture things. And typically, my nuance is that I'm an experimental physicist. Everyone I named, you know, previously, and including all the greats of of physics history, including Paul Steinhardt, are theoretical physicists. So they're not, they come from a different perspective. You know, a theoretician only has to be right once in, uh, in their life to make themselves famous, win a Nobel Prize, blah, blah, blah. An experimentalist, they only need to be wrong once, and it could be the end of their career. And even in, in the realm where you write, you know, a lot of times you have to make a lot of mistakes along the way. So there are many failures on the way to success if it does happen. And I agree that the overall mission, I think, is one that requires wisdom, not just knowledge. So it's not really surprising to me that most scientists don't take the big perspective, the big picture, the application, as, as you're mentioning. And that they're more concerned with with kind of you know the technical application and the details. So I think I think it's this distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And as they say, you know, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. And you know, like Stephen Hawking had a lot of knowledge about you know space time and curvature and relativity. He didn't have that much wisdom in a lot of areas of his life. Are you working on bringing that in? Change that? Do you bring that to your students? If so, how? Yeah, in terms of students, uh, the wisdom that I, so there's different types of students. As you probably know, you know, there are undergraduate students where I'm lecturing and teaching them about cosmology. 
there they need to know the big picture. You know, they need to know the details, the facts, the knowledge. And there I could be substituted by Wikipedia <laughs> in some cases, or in, you know, anyone, you know, Paul Steinhardt can teach, you know, knows this, you know, has the same books at Princeton or Penn, you know, as we use in UC San Diego. It's not like there's some special blend of, you know, brand of books that only these elite places get. No, of course not. So that means the knowledge is fungible in a certain sense, but wisdom is not fungible. And wisdom comes from the combination of life experience, of failure, of application of knowledge. And so for my graduate students, the other class of students I do advise and postdoctoral scholars, yeah, there's a lot of wisdom. I'm dealing with a couple of situations right now where students are dealing with, you know, their spouses or their they're, you know, they're where they're going to live if they take a certain job versus another job. And they're, you know, they're torn because they've never had to like turn somebody down. You know, in academia, we go through all these hurdles. We're judged, we're graded, we're poked, we're prodded for 20 years plus, you know, from, from the age of four to the age of, you know, 28. And then you get your PhD and then you're like the bell of the ball. And then you have your choice of, of places to go to be a postdoc, to be a postdoctoral student, at least in my, in my field of experimental cosmology. Now, then the situation reverses and gets a billion times worse than it ever was as a fourth year, year grader or whatever, because it's almost impossible to get faculty jobs nowadays. But uh, that intermediate zone between graduate student and, and faculty, those are situations that these students have never been in and probably never be in again, where they have complete power over the situation to control the narrative, to turn down multiple. And there I have to talk to my students and I have to be tell them the benefit of my wisdom. There's no computer that could uh, analyze this for them and, and kind of help them wrestle through the different choices without telling them what to do, but to kind of guide them in a way that they do, as the Latin word educate means, bring out of. And, and that, I think, is where wisdom comes in. So the pouring into, that is knowledge. The, the bringing out of, that is wisdom. This is refreshing to hear. And uh, I'm also going to comment on the the theory experiment side, I'm going to lament to you and hear what you have to say. I don't know if you read Hacker News or Slashdot or any of the, um, Very sometimes Reddit. Every now and then someone will post about like what physics is about. And invariably it's all theory. Everything they write is theory. And every time I write some post, it's something like, you know, it's an experimental science. It's not just math. You know, it's, it's really beautiful. I'll quote Feynman, you know, it, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. If, if it doesn't fit nature, it's wrong. You got to throw it out. And they downvote me like crazy. And they're like, I, I think the view is like, you just got to learn more math and it's all theory. And I mean, I, I was that way for a long time because, you know, as you said, it's like Einstein is the big one and, and Newton. And, and I mean, Feynman, I guess, also did experiment as well. Galileo, I guess you could say, did experiment. Oh, yes, he did experiment. But the big names are always the theorists. But then experiment is really, it's not math. Math is glorious. I love math. But physics is, is experimental and it's about nature. Do you get a lot of that? Is it? Is... Yeah, no, I, I rail against that all the time. I mean, I was on uh, Eric Weinstein's Portal podcast last year. An episode hopefully will be released relatively soon. And, you know, in that I talked about, you know, all the people that he's had on, all the people that people talk about, the Brian Greens, the Richard Feynman's, the Einsteins, you know, on down, Lisa Randall, Jana Levin, Katie Freeze, David Spurt, all these people are theoretical physicists. They're not, they're not experimentalists. Feinstein didn't do, uh, Feynman didn't do any experiments. Uh, he was known for, you know, contributing to the Manhattan Project, but that was theoretically inclined. And so all these things that we have are, are really, you get the impression that physics is only theoretical. And I actually had this conversation with 
uh, John Preskill, who is the Feynman Professor of Physics at Caltech. And he is an expert in quantum computing, and but also in black holes, et cetera. And we had a conversation. I actually quoted to him the, that statement from his namesake uh, chair professor, Richard Feynman. And I said, you know, what about string theory, which you cannot see if it even agrees with experience. I'm not even saying it's, it's been falsified or ruled out, but it may not in principle even be testable by experiment. And his response is we have to work harder to, to look at experimental uh, implications. So nobody disagrees with it. But yes, the people that you hear, and so why is that? Oh, why is it that we think of physics as, as theoretical physics when actually most of the Nobel Prizes that have been won are for, are for experimental or observational aspects of physics? And I think it's kind of the difference either between, say, I was trying to think of the analogy just now, but uh, between, say, a painter and a sculptor. Like a painter, you know, could be brilliant and you can appreciate it by looking at your computer uh, because it's, two, it's a two-dimensional medium. But the sculptor, you know, to really get the, the whole gestalt of it, you need to be there in person. And so maybe, you know, like painters are much more famous than sculptors. I mean, obviously some are do both, but they're much more. Or maybe like a musician versus a, a sculptor. You know, a musician is kind of like a theoretical physicist, whereas or an experimentalist might be the conductor in the orchestra. You know, but he or she has to be the one that like orchestrates literally all the pieces so that they bring together, bring to life this this thing. And in a lot of times where our job as experimentalists is to prove people wrong, you know, because even the brightest theorists can't prove something right. Uh, only, and even an experimentalist, we can't prove something right. We can just falsify every other alternative. And so that makes us less popular, you know, to invite to dinner parties because, oh, there's Keating. He's going to try to prove me wrong. And oftentimes we get into troubles when we do try to prove something right. You know, as happens, as I discussed in losing the Nobel Prize, a phenomenon called confirmation bias, which also Richard Feynman spoke about and saying, you know, the first principle is you should not fool yourself. And the second principle is you're the easiest person to fool. <laughs> if you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I'm going to jump abruptly to the environment now. I mean, you heard this when, when we were on with uh, All Teacher, with James, and is the environment something that is important to you? Is it something that you think about or work or have you changed your behavior based on it? Yeah, I think that there's, uh, I think COVID has been a great, you know, accelerator, uh, you know, as a negative thing. Obviously, it's awful, tragic, but it's accelerated a move that I think will ultimately bring technology in service of, of sustainability, of climate improvement. I mean, for one thing, this conversation that you and I are having with, you know, ultra fast wi- you know, Wi-Fi or, or Ethernet. These are these are things, you know, with one click, you know, links and stuff. And you know, I'm sorry I was late, but but the point is we can communicate instantaneously. There's even an option I was looking for. If I was recording it right now, we could translate in real time into multiple languages on the UCSD server side. We can do that. We can make closed caption for our friends and listeners who cannot maybe hear everything audibly or maybe don't choose not to hear everything. They want to read it. And a lot of, and then we can generate transcripts. And these are all things I'm doing on my podcast 
and and I hope you'll do too, because there's a whole lot of you know people that have different abilities in terms of their own personal accessibility that I think we need to pay attention to, especially in this in this field of science where I have a lot of people and students in particular who have you know sensory issues or whatever, and so the more we can kind of obtain at zero cost. I mean, this doesn't cost me anything. It doesn't cost you anything, you know, potentially either. Push a button, get a transcript, and now it's searchable. Now it's like adding value to it. So now this has replaced our need to have meetings in person, which were, you know, 300 people flying all across the country, all across the world from, you know, places as far as Antarctica to San Diego, to Princeton, to wherever. Tremendous reduction. Now, is it exactly, you know, the same as being in person? No, but can it augment it? And can we do better? You know, Josh, can you do better with this type of technology to make it even better than in person? As I said, we already can do something that in person we can't do. Like if, if you're surrounding me and you and I are having a conversation at a meeting, you know, I'm going to get suspicious. You start, you know, tape recording everything I say or, you know, whatever, but now we can do it and it's adding value to the listener. So that's one thing that I think will, will be a benefit to the environment, first and foremost. The second thing is, you know, we as, as the inhabitants of very sacred, in some cases, or very uh, pristine environments like the South Pole in Antarctica, or the tops of mountains in Hawaii or in Chile, we inhabit some of the most delicate, pristine, beautiful areas of the world. And yet, a lot of what we do is still powered the old-fashioned way with diesel-fuel-powered electric generators that are tremendously inefficient. They're dangerous. They break down. My skill set allows me because I was a kid and I used to tinker on my car. Yeah, I could work on it. Is that what you really want me to do? You know, to like fix a, fix a turbo, you know, pump, at a turbocharger, you know, diesel generator at 18,000 feet above sea level, you know, that I'll do once in my life. No, that's not a really great use of my time. Why not have a battery? Why not have a solar power system? You know, the South Pole is not that great a place for solar electricity because it's dark literally, you know, six months of the year. But the other times of the year, it's windy. There's wind power solutions. There are some augmented things. The other thing is that we can reduce the risk to the instrument. You know, we have to have a, a truck, a, basically a tanker truck filled with diesel fuel driving from sea level in Chile to 17,500 feet above sea level on bumpy mountain roads. There can be accidents. People have gotten killed. The diesel could spill. Once it's stored, it can leak, it can degrade. So this is all incentivizing us to get uh, to work towards um, clean power, at least in the Chile environment. We just submitted a proposal to the National Science Foundation. Hopefully, it will, uh, it will be successful to kind of augment and also reduce the risk to the experiment. Because if the diesel truck crashes, we only have a couple of days worth of, of fuel in addition to the environmental disaster that would be, and thank God it hasn't happened yet. I hope it won't. But if it did happen, the experiment would go down in a couple of days. And these massive instruments that are looking for the wispiest glow of the afterbirth of inflation or of the early universe or the formation of the elements, you know, we have these massive cryostats at your alma mater at UPenn in Mark Devlin's lab, my collaborator in Friends lab, is a 2.3 meter diameter cryostat that has to be kept to about a millionth of atmospheric pressure inside cooled down to 0.1 degree above absolute zero. And that instrument could take two or three weeks to cool down and to warm up from room temperature, even there in Chile, it's still, you know, still in the, in the 50s or, or you know, 30s to 40s uh, on a warmer summer day at that altitude. So anyway, reducing risk comes with a benefit to the environment. What's not to like about that? 
And so we've also tried to, you know, maybe ping your alma mater, uh, your alumna, famous alumnus, uh, Elon Musk, to maybe get him to get us a couple of power walls down there. So far, unsuccessfully, but we keep trying because I think it's important to do it for uh, the maintenance of this beautiful, pristine environments in the planet that we call the spaceship that we call Earth. And also for, you know, practical reasons to reduce risk, to improve efficiency, and to uh, be good stewards of the environment that surrounds us. I'm going to go into more depth about what you said at the very end there about this beautiful, pristine planet, this Earth that we're on. Because I, if, I, if I read you right, you talked about a lot of things that we're doing now going forward and, and of practical value here and now. I sense that that beauty, that pristine, and when you talked about the mountaintops, the beauty there, I sense that there's something driving you. Like that's where the origin of the, the motivation comes from. I'm not sure. It's you. But what motivates you? Is, is there something in there that motivates you, not just to what you can achieve, but where it's coming from, what, the reason it's worth maintaining this, or why we would call it beautiful? Oh, so yes. Yeah. So certainly what's interesting to me is to look at the origin of the word cosmos or cosmology. And people laugh and I say, oh, I'm a cosmetologist, you know, my day job. Uh, but actually, it's a very, it's more than just skin deep. The word cosmos means beautiful and it means appearance. So the universe presents an appearance to us like our faces or, you know, uh, present a beautiful appearance. Everybody has their own unique beauty. Well, the earth certainly does as well. And especially it's impossible as you get overawed by seeing the night sky or, or to see anything in the heavens. These have inspired almost a primeval kind of emotions in human beings. And I think astronomers have no special claim on that. But we also, the more we know about it, at least in my case, the more I learn about it, the more kind of it enhances my love of it. And here's an example. So the famous pale blue dot image of planet Earth suspended on a sunbeam was called by Carl Sagan in his poem, The Pale Blue Dot, you know, a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam. And I started to think about that. Dust is kind of the villain of my book, Losing a Nobel Prize. And I started tracing like the history of dust, like brief history of dust uh, from the origin of the universe to the origin of our planet. And, you know, thank goodness we have it. And then I started looking deeper and I, and I actually found that the Incas who used to live in this region of Chile, the indigenous people, they had a different relationship to something that we Western astronomers or, you know, whatever, really ignored or treated as, as kind of literal detritus. And that was that from the Southern Hemisphere, especially, you can see that the Milky Way is not only comprised of luminous objects like stars, but also it is, there is present great vast quantities of absolute inky blackness. And this is not just because there are no stars there. No, in fact, there may be a tremendous number of stars in the Milky Way, in the galactic plane, but they're obscured by clouds of absorbing dust. And this dust, you know, later can form enormous planets like the Earth or the rocky planets. And so they actually have constellations, I found out. And these constellations are not the stars connected together in kind of this, you know, uh, must have been a Netflix alternative back in the, in the olden days. But actually, they're actually, they look like things. They look like snakes or llamas. There's one called the umbilical cord of the llama. So, you know, if you're born down there, your zodiac wouldn't be necessarily a Gemini or something. It would be, I'm an umbilical cord. So I think that would be kind of cool. But it makes me think that we're all connected, as, you know, Seneca said, or Seattle said. I think it was Seneca. I forget who. Um, no, Seattle said, Chief Seattle. He said, you know, we're all connected like the blood that flows through our veins. 
And literally the same material that makes up those clouds is comprised in some cases of the iron that is trapped by the hemoglobin molecule inside of our blood. And that came from the same fiery cauldron of stars that exploded to make our life on earth possible. So how can you not be overawed by the deep connections between the most humble substance in the universe, dust, to the grandest quest to understand the origin of time? The question you just answered, I ask of nearly all my guests, and everyone's got a unique answer. And yours, if I, if I heard the core of it, was there's a, an aesthetic beauty to all of nature that is almost impossible to put into words. And, and you, know, you give examples and, of these connections between what's in our veins and what's in the inky blackness, blackness of space. But I have to say, that feels very close to my, what got me into physics in the first place, what motivates me. And the closest person so far to me before you was the head of corporate social responsibility at McDonald's which was like a very surprising thing for me. <laughs> so now another physicist. So it, it, uh, it, I, I'm, you're going to help me sleep better at night. <laughs> Although Bob Langert was a great guest and I really loved that conversation with him. And now I think we're just running out of time for your schedule. Yeah. I also know that from our conversation with James that you came in here having thought of something to do. And I think you know that the next question is to think of something you could do. And I didn't ask you what it was, but you said before we started recording, you had something in mind. I wonder if you could share. Is there enough time to share it? Yeah. So really quickly, because I want to ask you the questions I ask my guests, because I don't know when I'll have time to get you on my show, but I'll make a mini episode with your answers uh, to it. But I want to say that, yes. Yeah, so from my perspective, what I'm trying to do is to popularize or increase the augmented and virtual reality spaces for education. I think that will have a sustainable component in that you won't necessarily need to come to UCSD or go to Princeton or Penn or wherever, or to Chile, or to do things that are impossible, like go to ancient uh, Florence and talk to Galileo Galilei. And so what I'm interested in now is, is kind of taking the works of great physicists, starting with, because I am a subject matter expert in that field only, you know, some question even that, but nevertheless, to take the collected works of Galileo and make the first ever audio book version of Galileo's works and then take that printed word and those audio transcripts using great helpers and, and colleagues and friends like Carlo Rovelli, one of the greatest living physicists, uh, Frank Wilczek, another great living physicist, Jim Gates, uh, Fabiola Giannati. We're all coming together on this project to take the first ever words of Galileo and make it into an audiobook. And then from there, what I want to do is make a virtual Galileo, which I'm calling Galileo, and that uh, artificial intelligent Galileo will be someone that you can interact with, that you can ask questions of, that you can, you can query to kind of get an impression, both because I believe that teaching requires that you're a good student. And being a good student means that you have to teach. And this is something James says a lot, you know, you want to find someone better than you, lower than you and equal to you, and all those three different people. So from my perspective, the best way to be a good physicist and learn how to teach, which is rarely if ever taught, to professors even, is to, you know, practice in different situations. So could you teach Galileo quantum electrodynamics, you know, discovered 300 years after his death? Well, maybe you could, and maybe, but maybe just the exercise of trying to communicate with someone obviously incredibly intelligent or tell him about relativity. He would get, you know, Galilean relativity because he invented it. Could he understand special relativity? I bet he could. And all that's missing is that you would have to explain it to him. And in so doing, I believe that there'll be, you know, some potential benefit later on in life that maybe universities and the physical structures, which occupy a lot of space, energy, real estate, you know, here in San Diego, it's on indigenous lands. Yeah, maybe some of that impact footprint 
can be minimized. So, you know, I didn't say when I'm coming back. So it could be a long time from now. Thank you. Congratulations to you and all the success to come. And um, I'm sure we'll be in touch more. That's great. Thank you, Josh. Take care, everybody. Bye.